kindergarten through third grade, you guys are dismissed. You're going to be headed downstairs for junior church. The rest of you, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 2. We are continuing in, in our Advent series called Come and See. Over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at a couple different things, and we've been encouraging you with this Advent series to slow down and to prepare your hearts for the King's arrival. We've been encouraging you through the book of Isaiah. We looked at promise and patience that first week in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we saw that God had a plan to restore the hurt and broken people. We looked at how he promised that he would bring about not only deliverance from Israel's issues, but he promised a deliverer to the world, to deliver the world from its issues. Then last week we looked at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Many of you guys know that that is the passage of the suffering servant. We took a look and we saw that God would give grace to sinners by punishing his son for our sake. We saw Jesus was not just a helpless victim in this process, but he was willing to lay his life down for his sheep. He cared for us. He had compassion on us. He showed us mercy and grace by taking our place on the cross. He was the suffering servant that we desperately needed. Today what we're going to be looking at is this concept of worship and warfare. Today what we're going to be looking at is the wise men searching for the king and how their searching led to joy-filled hearts, to worship, and to giving. And we're going to find out that the principle we learn from this simple passage is that people can choose to either worship the true king or they're going to turn against him. Before we read the passage here together today, I want to give you just a little bit of a background to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Many of you guys have read Matthew chapter 1 over the Christmas season. The first part of Matthew chapter 1 is the lineage of Jesus Christ, showing that he is connected to David and he is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Not only that, we also get this insight to Joseph's side of this story. Joseph was considering what to do with Mary when she was found out to be pregnant, and it's not his. God comes to Joseph in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he tells Joseph what the plan is. The babe in her is special. It's unique. You will call his name Jesus, giving purpose to this coming king. He would save his people from their sins. So it links automatically with this savior uh, per person from the Old Testament, the Messiah, who has promised to come. We also see the link to the kingship, but then Matthew quotes that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, linking that this person is going to be God in the flesh. And that leads us into Matthew chapter 2. So if you would follow along with me as I read today. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you, or for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. This passage many of us have read over, uh, over the years. It's a, it's a very famous Christmas story. We sing songs about it with the We Three Kings concept. We focus on the gifts. We focus on Herod and his plan and plot. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So let's break down the passage together today as we look at this, and then we're going to look at the principle of what we see, and then we're going to look at application of how can we put these things into practice. So the first thing that we see in this passage is what I call seeking the king in verses 1 and 2. What happens is we get this time frame and introduction from the author Matthew of this book. He introduces, first off, this has happened after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so after the shepherds have come from the angels and things like that, the child from the context we know, has grown a little bit. And now Mary and Joseph have a home in Jerusalem. But not only that, we also get this time frame of Herod the king in power or in ruling. And what's great is that this story and these notes here give us just an idea of how to date this. It shows us the reliability of scripture throughout all of history. Herod is ruling in the time of Israel. Wise men come from the east to Jerusalem. So what are wise men? Wise men are simply magi. They're magicians, priests, or sorcerers. Many of you guys have heard the word magi before. This is a term that's usually designated for a priestly caste system in the Medes and the Persian Empire. They had esoteric skills and inter they uh, interpreted dreams. They were soothsayers, astrologers. Uh, some of them used divinations. We see these guys pop up all the time throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we were just talking about uh, with Pharaoh and Egypt and Joseph. The idea is he would have wise men who would have interpreted his dreams, but they couldn't figure it out. Daniel was, with it, was like this in Babylon and with uh, King Darius in the Mede and Persian Empire, where he was given the ability to interpret dreams. He stood out from among the other wise men or magi that were around him. So what we see is Matthew brings up this idea that these wise men these political and religious leaders of another nation travel to Jerusalem to look for someone. They ask around Jerusalem, the place, the capital city of Israel, the place where a king would be found, really, ruling and reigning. And they ask, where is the king? We, we've come to worship him. We've come to find him. 
And what we see in this next note is rather interesting. It's what I call troubling news, verses 3 and 4. Herod hears of the news, and this hits him deeply. It troubles him. Herod was a bad guy. We focused on this in the past. I'm just going to highlight some notes of Herod's history and what we know of him. Herod came to rule in the Israelite area or the uh, area of the Middle East under the Roman Empire. And through victories of Rome, he was given additional lands to rule. By 37 BC, he was known as a great builder of public works. In fact, a lot of the monuments you see over in Israel are Herod's handiwork. He built these things, not only one to be recognized by Rome, but also to be recognized and adored by the Jewish people. He, in fact, designated him the self-king of the Jews. He had a rather high view of himself. However, Herod was also known for having more than ten wives. He had a number of sons, and they all wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. They wanted to take his position, his power. Herod, being paranoid, ended up killing a lot of his family. In fact, it's noted in history that he tortured his son's friends in order to discover the plots against him. This is not a great picture of what a king should be, right? He's very concerned about his rule, his reign, his power. When he hears that the king of the Jews has been born, this worries him. This causes him great stress. It's that idea of having like that gut-wrenching feeling that you know something's off. You're worried. You have anxiety about this. Now, that's normal because Herod was already paranoid and he wanted power himself. But what's interesting about this is Matthew notes that it's not just Herod that's concerned. It's all of Jerusalem, too, which is a very weird note if you think about it. Because the Jewish people should have been thrilled at the appearance of their king, the arrival of this guy. Yet they too are troubled. And so we have to ask simply, why does Matthew note this? And there, there's two possible re reasons. I think the first one is that really they were okay with the status of things. Rome had given them kind of power to just self-govern, self-rule. They could kind of still do what they wanted to do, but they didn't really have to worry about anything. No enemies were really going to try to attack Rome. They didn't have to worry about that stuff. Or two, maybe they were just comfortable. They didn't want things to change. Because change, let's face it, is hard. Matthew doesn't tell us why Jerusalem is troubled with Herod, but what we do know is that they too are concerned about this king's arrival and the news of a king. So what does Herod do? He inquires. He goes to find out, okay, what is this all about? And as I've read this story over many Christmases with my family and as myself studied it, I caught this note this time. When he inquired of the chief priests and the scribes, he asked them where the Christ should be born. I think Herod knew that this person was more than just the next king or the rightful king to take David's throne. To ask where the Christ is born is to ask where the Messiah is supposed to be at. And what happens? The chief priests and scribes tell Herod what he needs to know. Five, verses 5 and 6 show us the known arrival. They knew where to look. 
note, it says that for it's written by the prophets. The chief leaders and scribes knew exactly where to look and what to look for. God had revealed this to his people, his plan. And I think this highlights just two great notes here. The first one is that God does not hide his plan of salvation or his plans from us. He doesn't say, you have to guess what I'm going to do next. No, instead, he actually tells his people and reveals it, as we've seen in Isaiah and many of the other prophetic books of the Old Testament. In fact, he told Adam and Eve his plan of what he was going to do. God does not hide his plans. He does not hide his plan of salvation from us. He has openly revealed these things to us. The second thing is that it reveals that God is active and in control of this plan, that nothing's going to shake it, that he is working it out. Many of you guys have probably heard the probability, and we we talked about it in the office in one of our devotions, of Jesus Christ actually fulfilling the prophecies listed in the Old Testament scriptures. And there's a very slim chance that he could have fulfilled them. This one's impossible to control where an unborn child would be born at. Again, it just proves that Jesus is more than just a simple person. He's more than just a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis says. It leaves us with the fact that he must be Lord, that this was a part of God's plan. So the chief priests and Pharisees, the scribes, tell Herod exactly what's written. The Old Testament, they go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they say, O you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judea, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. If you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to note that Matthew has changed the text just slightly and left out a line. Micah 5, 2 quotes this, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth is from old, the ancient of days. Matthew deliberately changes the text just a little bit, just to shift the focus. He focuses on the fact that there is a rightful king, a rightful ruler who will come to rule over his people. But that last line within Matthew chapter 2 highlights what he's going to do. He's going to be a shepherd of my people. He will care. He will guide for them. He will show love. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry, he identifies himself as a shepherd. He uses many parables to talk about sheep and shepherds. In fact, he states, I am the good shepherd. And this draws our attention to Ezekiel. Ezekiel used this reference for kings as shepherds. God told the kings of Israel that they were poor shepherds, they were abusing people. Then he promises that he would come and be their shepherd. Matthew draws the people in. But notice that the scribes and the Pharisees in their quote here of this line and within Matthew's writing leaves out the last part of Micah 5.2. The person who is coming to rule over Israel is coming, who, who is coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This person would be attached 
to God or would be God. Again, highlighting that Emmanuel seen in the first chapter, God with us. We are drawn in to understand that this child is more than just a mere child. He is the true, rightful God King. So what happens? Herod summons the wise men secretly. He ascertains from them the time the star appears so he can figure out, okay, when did this all take place? When was the child born? What am I looking for? He's starting to hatch a plot slowly. And we'll see later on in the text, in verses 16 through 18, him carry out his plan of trying to get rid of this child. But here, he simply talks to the wise men. He figures out, okay, when does this all take place? And then he sends them out. He says, go to Bethlehem. That's where this is supposed to take place. Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me so that I too can come and worship. Notice Herod doesn't go with the wise men. The priests, the scribes don't go with the wise men to look for this king. Why is that? It could be that they don't want to be seen. It could be that they're just not sure. For Herod, I think it's actually just the idea that even falsely worshiping this person is repugnant to him. He doesn't even want to be seen doing it. So his plan is to get rid of the king. He sends the wise men away. Then we get into verses 9 through 12, which is called joy-filled worship, or what I call joy-filled worship. The wise men leaving Herod's palace, which is about five miles from Bethlehem. It's on top of a rather tall hill. In fact, you'd be able to see pretty much all the land around it from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to the Dead Sea. It's a pretty unique place. As the wise men leave, they see the star. And it's not like this star is only shining for them. Other people could have seen it, could have followed it, could have recognized it. But they don't. The wise men do, though. They understand that this star was described of, from olden times. If you go back to Numbers, you'll see that the prophet Balaam speaks of a star coming out of the land of Jacob. As Balaam is paid to curse the people of Israel, God says, no, you're not going to curse them. Instead, you're going to bless them. And he says, out a, a star will rise out of Jacob, a ruler from the land of Israel. The wise men recognize the meaning of this star. When they see it, they follow it, and then notice, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because they knew their journey and what they were searching for was coming to an end. They were about to find their prize. They go into the house, they saw the child, not the infant, the child, so just note that Jesus is a little bit older here with his mother Mary, and they fell down and they worshipped him. These are political, religious leaders of another nation. They are falling down and worshiping a child in a no-name city. Not, not even a child who's recognized to be the true king of Israel. They worship, they bow down, and then they offer gifts, recognizing this child's status, his position. For you only give gifts to royalty. 
Now, over the years, many people have focused on what, what it's the meaning of these gifts, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. What's interesting is they offer more gifts than just those things, but those are highlighted here. Some people say that the gold represents the idea of royalty, that the frankincense rec- uh, identifies the idea of divinity, that he is from God, that he's a divine, and myrrh for the burial and resurrection. We're not really told that here and throughout Scripture. You can see hints of that here and there. But what we do note is that these gifts are rather expensive. These are things that only very rich people would have, and they're offering it to a child. Again, it just proves that they recognize that this person is more than just a small kid, that this is the true king of Israel, and possibly even more. Then verse 12, God comes to them in a dream. I don't think it's ironic that the fact that God comes to them in a dream, because that's their job, interpreting dreams. But he tells them to depart for their own country a different way. Not only does God show probably mercy to the wise men, because by avoiding Herod, they probably spare their own lives, but this is God thwarting the plan of a wicked man whose intent is to stop God's plan. And God says, nope. I already know about that. I already know what's going on in Herod's heart. I already know what you plan to do. I'll make sure it fails. So the wise men return a different way. What I want to do today is just kind of highlight something here, is this comparison aspect between the people we see in this story. The wise men are definitely focused on as these worshipers, these people who have approached God. They're recognizing the true king versus Herod and the people. And Herod and the people are really seen kind of more as refusers. They want to reject the king. They're kind of scared of the king. And so notice what we see throughout this lesson, or throughout this passage. The first thing is that the wise men choose to leave their home, to travel over 900 miles to find this person. And they search and they look diligently. They ask people, where can we find him? Where can we find him? How do, where are we going with this? When they do find him, they rejoice, they worship, and they give gifts out of generosity. Not because they have to, because they want to. And then what we note about the wise men is that God really does guide them and direct them throughout all of this. Not only does God put the star in the sky, which is a supernatural phenomenon, But he also guides them how to get home. Yeah, don't go back to Herod. Take another route. But then, in conjunction with that, we see the opposite side, Herod and the people. And I label the people there because they're tied in with Herod's reaction. Herod stays put. He stays where he's at in his palace. He's troubled at the news that there's a king's arrival. He, in fact, plots against the king. He deceives others to try to get his way. He's willing to kill innocents, which if you jump down to 16 through 18, you know that he goes throughout all of Bethlehem in in a mad, angry tirade to kill all the children two and under. That's horrendous. No one in their right mind would do that, but clearly this describes how 
He just wants to maintain his power. And the last one is that God thwarts his plan. We see it all throughout the book of Proverbs that the wicked who plan, who deceive, who try to do their own thing will be brought low by God. And in this instance, we see that come true. And it's a beautiful picture of what worshipers will do versus what really people who reject God will do. Worshipers are willing to leave things behind because they know they're going towards something better. They experience joy when they find the king, when they have that relationship with him. They worship him. They understand what he has done for them. True worshipers give gifts out of generosity, not because they have to, not because they're commanded to, not because they're forced to, but because they want to, out of appreciation. And true worshipers are guided by God. Whereas people who reject God, who reject God's authority, we see that they never grow. They stay where they're at. They're okay with that. They resist God all the way. They deny his authority. They deny his guidance. They don't, they don't want that. They get lazy. They get complacent. They'll do whatever they need to to stay in power, to stay in control for themselves. And the sad thing is we know that God will bring them down hard no matter what. It's the promise in Scripture that pride goes before a fall. The biggest act of pride is to simply say, I am God, and not to acknowledge the true God and King. So the principle we learn from this passage, I think it's pretty obvious, and I'm sure many of you guys have already spotted it. People can really either choose to worship the true king, just like the wise men did, or they could choose to turn and reject the king, like Herod did. Throughout scripture, we see these two principles come to light. Let's just talk about searching for the true king and how it leads to worship and joy. All throughout scripture, there's story after story of people who search for God, who lean on God, who look to God for answers, and God responds, and it changes how they react and how they live. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at this next week with the angels and the shepherds. But when the shepherds find Jesus in the manger, it's not like they're like, oh, hey, that was really cool. We're really glad we were part of this, and they go home. No, they leave jumping, shouting for joy in the middle of the night. They can't contain their praises of what has happened. Their interaction with the true king has changed them and led them to praise and worship. The second one, really, that I want to bring up is John chapter 4, because we're going to look at this here in the application section. John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman at the well. She has an interaction with Jesus that's rather unique. But her time spent with the king leads her to run into town to cry to the people, you've got to come see this guy. He's told, he's told me everything I've ever done. And by the way, I'm, I'm starting to think this might be the Christ, that this might be the Messiah who's come to save us. Again, what's unique is you have wise men who are Gentiles recognizing the true king, and then there you also have a Samaritan woman who's a Gentile recognizing the true king. She leads people back to see Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, 42 through 43, Jesus heals a blind man. The blind man, after receiving sight, begins to praise God for the healing, to celebrate what God has done for him. 
and he leads others to praise God as well. He has other people join in on the worship and the joy that he has found. See, there are many out there searching for the king, or a king. There are some who desire the rightful thing. They really want that hole in their heart and their life to be filled. But the problem is they go through so many different kings to try to find it. It leads them empty. It leaves them hurting. It leaves them bare. Some people try to fill that throne in their life and in their heart where God should be sitting, where Christ should be sitting, with power, with love, with relationships, with money, drugs, alcohol, food, so many things. The problem is when we put the wrong king on the throne in our life, it doesn't lead to joy. It leads to sadness. It leads to depression. It leads to hurt and heartache. Above all that, the Bible does promise that those who do look for and search for the true king will find him. Matthew chapter 6 is a great illustration. Jesus even makes it clear on the Sermon on the Mount. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Seek, you will find. The Bible also, though, portrays people that they're not looking for something. They're just going to flat out reject it. Rejecting the true king will lead to rejection and retaliation and doing things your own way. I think one of the best stories to illustrate this is Matthew chapter 19 with the rich young ruler. The man comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? Or he says, really good teacher. So Jesus says, okay, let's talk about this. Have you obeyed the commandments? Obeying your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't covet. Don't steal. He goes, yeah, sure, I've done all that. Which that's probably a lie, to be honest. So Jesus says, okay, that's fine. You're convinced of that. Here's what you need to go do. Go sell all that you have and follow me. What does the text say there that the young man does? Does he go and sell all he has to follow Jesus? No, in the Gospels, actually in multiple accounts, the same thing is pretty much said. He goes away sad, brokenhearted, because why? He had much. He was really comfortable with the stuff he had. He felt really good about it. And then in the light of gaining the answer of what must I do for eternal life, he says no to eternal life, no to following Jesus, in order to hold on to what he has, his stuff. He doesn't find joy at the end of that conversation. He finds depression because he knows what he's losing in order to what he's holding on to, to maintain what he's holding on to. But see, Jesus also prepares his disciples over and over again. Luke chapter 10, he says to them, the one who hears you, he hears me. The one who rejects you, he rejects me. But the one who rejects me really is rejecting God himself. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They don't really want God. John chapter 12, verse 48, he highlights what's the result of rejection. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
Rejecting the true king will leave you standing in judgment. You will find no joy, you will find no forgiveness, no love. The king will execute righteousness and justice. So rejecting the king will lead you to rejection. In fact, even again in Matthew, Jesus highlights again on the Sermon on the Mount. There will be, there will be people who say, hey, look, Lord, we've done a lot of great things in your name, and the Lord will send them on and say, depart, I, I never knew you. Now, that happens in the Old, or in the old Testament and in, in what we might say old days, but just think about today. Is that attitude even still alive? The answer is, I think so. I want to show you a minor scale of what I'm talking about so I could prove that the bigger issue is true. The last year and a half has been quite, uh, quite, quite contentious, of course, with our election. But just imagine, we had many people say, not my president, right? That was flown all over the place. It was highlighted on social media. People were posting it because of their uh, discontentment with the election and how things went. Just that spirit of rejecting, rejecting that leadership. Nope, 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 I don't want you. I don't like you. I don't know. We do that to a simple man, and I think Mark highlighted this last week, man. If we do that to a simple person, how much more do we do it to God in our hearts at times? It's why the Bible again and again and again tells us we must crucify our old self and crucify our desires and our passions because they will lead us away from God. So what do we do this week? How do we put this all into practice? I think there's three things. The first thing is we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis and reflect on who our king is. For Herod, it was pretty obvious. It was self and power. That's who was ruling in his life. He would do anything to maintain that. For the people of Jerusalem, I do think it's probably the comfort and the status quo. They were okay with where they're at. They didn't want things shaken up. They didn't want to go anywhere. They just wanted to stay the same. However, for Christians, we know that it is God's son who's supposed to be king in our life. That means yielding to the king's direction to his guidance, to his word, to his spirit. We need to ask ourselves, who will we submit to? Who will we bow down to? If you don't know who Christ is, if you haven't trusted him, then you have to ask yourself, who's ruling your life right now? Who's making all of your decisions, calling your shots? How are you deciding to live? For Christians... We need to ask ourselves this question daily because there's always a war going on inside of us between our flesh, our desires of what we want to do versus the spirit and what he is guiding us or calling us to. There's a war waging on, raging on sorry, in our hearts. Contention, we need to check in and ask God, give us clarity to see who's really ruling within us. Christmas is a great time because I think there's a very obvious picture here that we could look to. At Christmas, what happens? We like to all give presents, right? Kids, this is probably especially true for you. Usually, you're really focused on what am I getting for Christmas, right? Christmas, 
Okay, I've got three young kids, so let me just put this into perspective. I don't think I've stopped hearing about what is my son's getting for Christmas. Like, they, they really want to know. Like, it's like we expect these gifts coming up here, right? It's real easy to see sometimes who rules their life or what is ruling their life. The sad thing is that as a child, it's pretty obvious. Sometimes as an adult, we hide it pretty well. So we need to check in. We need to ask ourselves, who is our king? The second one is we need to appreciate the great gifts of the almighty king. As we put our faith in Christ, who is the rightful king, we start to appreciate more and more of what he's done for us. God's word reveals and guides us into gratitude and to thanksgiving for his mighty and awesome work. See, Romans chapter 5, 8 puts it this way. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, showing we didn't deserve the mercy he showed us. Colossians 1, 11 through 12, Paul calls the church to give thanks to the Father for including them in this plan of salvation or the inheritance of the saints of light. God's included it, opened up so much to you. Are you thankful about it? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, even Peter challenges the church by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. And he's going to go on. Even though you suffer right now, you know that there is something greater waiting for you. And he challenges the church, be thankful, be grateful for what God has done. The last one, share with others the great joy of knowing the king. True Christians are marked by joy. Our goal, though, is to point others to Christ so that they too can experience the joy and the hope that we find in worshiping God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, the author writes this, Do not neglect to do good, but share what you have. Now there the author is highlighting this material idea of sharing with one another, helping to meet other people's needs, but it also goes to the spiritual route. Share the hope that you have with other people. Share the joy that you find in Christ with other people. Sometimes we don't do this because why? We are not experiencing that joy because something else is ruling our heart. John chapter 4, 42, as I said, the woman at the well is a beautiful story. It's highlighted there. The woman brings the people, and at the end of the story, the people of the town say this to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard or experienced it ourselves and we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She shared the joy that she found in, in meeting the king. It changed her life. It changed the people's lives around her. But not just because she told them about it, but because they got to experience it for themselves. So as we close today, I want to challenge you with a few things. This coming week, if you haven't, please do so. Slow down. 
It's real easy to get lost in the Christmas season, the hustle, the bustle, the plans, the meetings, the parties, the gift wrapping, the gift buying. Slow down for yourself. Take time to reflect on Christ and his coming, what it means for you. Take time to reflect on the Lord's coming back and his return as king of this world. But then take time to reflect and ask yourself, who are you submitting to in your life? Who are you worshiping? Or maybe who are you warring against? Are you allowing yourself to submit to the king or are you the king yourself? I pray that each and every one of us today and throughout this week can stop to reflect on that. Ask God to show us in our hearts who's ruling over our lives and to convict and guide us in how we should respond. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you for today, and we thank you for what it is that you have done for us through your word today. Just looking at this passage, help us, Lord, to respond like the wise men, to have joy in our life at finding and discovering who you are, what it is that you have done for us, how you've guided us. Help us to worship you, to submit to you, to respond with grateful hearts for all the things that you do for us. And I hope that you challenge and convict us when sometimes we stray away from that and we put ourselves on the throne. Lord, forgive us for those times. Help us as your people to walk according to your word and to your spirit. Challenge us, convict us, guide us when when we get off track. Help us to remember that you are the true rightful king, not just over Israel, but over this whole world, Lord. You've created it. You sustain it. You work it. And Lord, I pray that we would just continue to submit to your rule and your reign in our life. Guide and direct us throughout this week. Help us to share the joy that we find in you with other people. Help us to show your love to them, to express kindness and compassion, and help us just to live changed lives so that other people can experience this joy, not just because of what, how we live or how we influence them, but because they experience it themselves. Lord, we thank you again for all that is that you've done for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you guys head out, one thing I want to do on behalf of our local outreach committee, we do have those flyers out back, and if you need more, feel free to grab them. There's a basket on the table as you leave. We have flyers, tracks, and a candy cane for you to take. I'm going to ask that uh, each family just take one of those packets, uh, and we want to challenge you to invite someone to our Christmas programs this coming Christmas season. Use that as just a great opportunity. Everyone loves a good candy cane. Pick those up on your way out. I want to pray, pray and just say you guys have a blessed and wonderful Sunday. You guys are dismissed and go with God.